Hey everyone, this is Tom Singer. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to inform you about a special offer that I have to join a brand new group called My Sales Call. If you work for a small business or if you're a solopreneur, having some people to talk about ideas and best practices and to have a focus and accountability around sales is so important. It's so easy to get caught up in the busy work that we don't do what we need to do to drive the sales in our business. So I have started a weekly call where people can get together and share ideas around sales and then make a commitment to the group of what they're going to accomplish for the next week. It's just like if you work for a big company, your sales manager would have a weekly sales call. This is your sales call. Go to mysalescall.com to find out more and sign up today. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table as we have conversations twice a week with really interesting people who are doing cool things in their careers and who have sort of that entrepreneurial spirit. Now, today's show is going to be a little bit different because today I actually have a clinical psychologist with us here, and I don't think we've ever actually had someone on to talk about sort of the ideas around mental health, both in general and for entrepreneurs. And yet, this is somebody I ran across. I was trying to figure it out. I think it was about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was going through just full disclosure. I was going through just a rough patch. And uh, my friend, Google, Dr. Google, uh, came in. And I was kind of Googling this idea. And it wasn't that I was depressed. I didn't think that was a fair topic because I know people who have fought really hard with with real depression issues. But I was just kind of sad. And I don't know where the term came from, but I came across this term, hidden sadness. And I came across an article by Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And the article was as if it was written for me. And as I read the article, I was like, oh, well, this is extravagantly helpful because I'm struggling with something I wasn't able to put a name on. And It was, like I said, it was like it was written for me. So I sent her an email and just said, hey, thanks for that article. It was very clear. It was very straightforward. It helped me. And in turn, she wrote me back. And we had a few email exchanges. I think we had a quick phone call. Uh, Full disclosure, she was not my therapist. I did not hire her, but we had a nice conversation. And she was working on a book on this topic. And she asked if she could interview me. I actually don't know that anything I said appeared in the book or not. But uh, we had a conversation as she was doing her research. And it was just really, really helpful for me. And in the back of my mind, she always stuck as one of those people who crossed my path at the exact right time. And most of you kind of know what I'm talking about. You've been through that where the right person came across either just in a flash and they were gone or permanently became a friend. And she was someone who just came across at that time and I didn't talk to her again. But I was on her mailing list and I recently saw that her book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression had been released. And I was like, no way. I remember her and I wanted to have her on the show, but I wasn't sure because some people who are, you know, psychologists and doctors and people like that, they're like, I don't know that I want to be on an entrepreneurial show. Her response was, and you hear me say this all the time about guests, her response was, yes, when can we do it? And I love people whose answer is yes. So we quickly got this scheduled, and today I get to bring to you sort of a candid discussion with Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Margaret, welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much, Tom. And please call me Margaret. That's great. And yes, I remember your conversation. And yes, you're in the book. <laughs> oh, I think I'm masked, though. I think you said you don't use names. Oh, yeah. So. Anonymously, of yeah. course. So, so people can read the book and try to figure out you know, who I am. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do, like I said, I definitely remember that. And this whole concept of sort of hidden sadness, what I realized was, like everybody, we all go through some rough patches. But I was sort of brought up where you didn't air your dirty laundry. And I had successfully kind of tucked it away from not only other people, but also from myself. And that was the key thing that that you made me feel like I wasn't weird because of that. And uh, once I know something and once I can put a name on it, I'm really good at sort of then chopping down the walls and jumping over fences. And so once I had that conversation, read your article, talked to you, I, I actually was able to come to a lot of terms with it. And very recently, you know, I'm not having any of those problems anymore. I'm very clear on where I am. I'm very kind of happy and grounded in my spot. But it took me a few years and it took some work. So is, is this something that you run into in your practice and since you write and blog and, and do all this, is this something you run into people who, who people have either sadness or, or worse, they have real depression and they, yes. they don't even know it? Yes, Tom. In fact, sometimes when you when you encounter people like this, they are actually they will deny having depression. They'll say, "Oh no, I, I like you said in the intro, I've known dep- depressed people. I know people with classic depression, and they are sad, and they're not you know they're struggling to be productive, and they don't want to do anything, and or they're angry all the time. Those are the symptoms of depression. That's not me." And so they'll mostly get diagnosed with anxiety or worry or overwork or fatigue. And one of my concerns all along has been that underneath all this perfectionism, the perfect looking life, the very engaged, productive, uh, volunteer for everything, overly responsible, uh, those kinds of people, the problem is they don't know how to access their own emotions, especially painful emotions. And actually they have compartmentalized them so much or compartmentalized traumatic events or things that happened to them a long time ago that were very difficult. They don't think about it. They don't want to think about it. But the problem is they also cut off both the upper uh, ranges of their emotion like joy, and then they cut off the, the more painful part of joy. So they have a much more decreased palette of emotions to paint with, if you want to think metaphorically. And I have seen people like this. And so I wrote a post about it in 2014. I wrote a post called The Perfectly Hidden Depressed Person Are You One? I just thought, you know, I would write it. I thought about the term. I just made it up. And it went viral. And then when it was put on the Huffington Post, I forgot that I had left my email on the bottom of the post. <laughs> oh, people and, like me started writing. Yes. And in less than 24 hours, I had 200 emails from people saying, I don't know where you got this term. I don't know how you came up with this idea, but I've never heard anybody talk about it. And this is me. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty flabbergasted. So I looked around and thought, I need to look at this this uh, marriage of perfectionism and potential depression that's underneath. There's a lot of shame in that kind of perfectionism. And I found Brene Brown's work. I must have been living under a rock because I had not heard of her before. <laughs> but there really, there really wasn't much out there. She's, she's kind of a big deal. Yeah, she's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> and it has gotten bigger since 2014. True, that's for yeah. sure. So, um 
But I looked at the research, I looked at what was written in popular literature, and I began to formulate this idea of a syndrome, which a syndrome is kind of like codependence. No one knew what codependence was until a bunch of people sat down and said, well, what are the people like that love alcoholics? or try to be in relationship with alcoholics. They have this and they tend to do that and they believe that. And so it's very much this group of behaviors or beliefs and that's called a syndrome. So I came up with some behaviors and beliefs that these people that I had seen tended to have or certainly um, believe in or really want to live their life by rules they were going to live their life by. And as I formulated this, I began to write more about it more people contacted me and said, you ought to write a book. I promise you, Tom, I never wanted to write a book, but this book kind of came to me. So that's why it's called Perfectly Hidden Depression. And um, I cannot tell you the number of people like you who saw the term and said, I've got to talk to you. And I've done 50, 60, 70 interviews. So I don't know if it was from you or from someone else. I really did latch on to this term hidden sadness. And I don't, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, I, I, I still stand by the fact that I don't know that I was a bad case. You know, I don't think it was something that was out of my control, right. but I saw myself in it. And I latched onto this hidden sadness term for a long time. And the more I latched onto it, the more I was able to, like I said, jump over those walls and knock them down. And you, the way you described it as you came in, it was like my eyes, as, as you came into the discussion just now, you talked about that it limited the palette of emotions. You, you, yes. you, you hide from yourself and other people the lows, but at the same time, you're taking away some of those highs. And as you said that, I thought, oh, that's exactly what I had done. And, you know, now in the last, I don't know, call it four to six months, I really feel that, you know, and, and maybe I should talk to, talk to a professional, maybe I'm hiding it from myself again, but uh, I definitely feel like, wow, I'm having those higher highs and I'm not scared of those lower lows quite as much, but it's been, you know, four plus years that I've been really sure. sort of on my own, sort of really looking at this, researching this and thinking about it. And, uh, you know, like I said, I feel at a really good spot. I'm, I'm, I'm okay now to on the show say, yeah, I dealt with this. Yeah. Well, I think there's a spectrum and there are a couple of terms out there. There's smiling depression, there's high functioning depression. And the, the uh, difference is that, those people are very conscious of what they're doing. And maybe you were somewhat conscious, but also it sounds like you weren't very conscious. But yeah, the those hid- are people the hidden who term, know that. The I'm hidden, sorry? The hidden term, like hidden from myself, yeah. was actually, yeah. until I read yeah. your article, was, was, was a real thing. Like I, I would have said, no, I'm fine. Then you're in the second group. Because the people that know they're hiding and know they're smiling, but still go home and know they're depressed or would identify with depression. I'm talking to those people because I think it's important. But the the even more provocative group is the group that's really unconscious of it. It is truly hidden to them. They have worked so hard. They came up with some kind of strategy when they were younger to... Maybe they were abused. Maybe they were um, maybe they were the star of their family. Maybe they had an alcoholic parent and they had to become a pseudo adult. There are lots of there are lots of roads to Rome here. There are lots of ways to to have created this strategy. But then they carry that strategy into adulthood. And the problem is that it's it's a very lonely and despairing way to live. Oh, absolutely. And they're not even they don't even know what's wrong. Absolutely. And I, we had talked about that when we talked years ago. And one of the things that really stuck with me is, is my mom got really sick when I was a teenager. And mm-hmm. I learned and taught myself early on that 
people didn't want to know how bad it was at home, uh, I, be it my friends in high school or be it relatives or even my older brothers who didn't live at home. Uh, nobody really wanted to know how sick she was. And, you know, it's like my brothers now, I mean, they're all in their 60s and we've had conversations about it and they lived, they didn't live in the same town. They'd all moved on and started their lives. They were much older than I was. And they literally, we were talking about what I went through when I was in high school. And one of them was like, I don't think I ever understood you know, how sick she was for that yeah. last couple of years. And I think I did exactly what you described is I learned how to go out there and people would say, how's your mom? And I was like, wow, everything's fine. And I learned how to just put on that mask. And I did such a good job that, you know, I was able to hide it from myself, I think for, for a long, long time. And, and then I've carried that into other things over the years. Exactly. Um, you remind me of a guy that uh, that wrote to me several years ago now, obviously, and said to me, you know, I've been in two marriages and I'm the reason why they failed because I never risked letting anybody know me. And so I now I'm I'm, I'm still scared to do it, but I want to try. And, and what the book does hopefully, is that it offers some uh, steps to do that. Now, it is a self-help book, but I do think that if there's significant trauma in your life that you have uh, denied or discounted and that you want to begin to deal with that, that really needs a therapist's guiding hand who is uh, accustomed to doing trauma, trauma work. However, not everybody has trauma who develops this kind of syndrome. So, uh, hopefully, the book is a. As a, in fact, I, I saw a, a review of it today on Goodreads or something, and she was saying, "Wow, it's really like a therapy session. You get into the middle of the book, and it's like a therapy session." I was like, "Yeah, good. That's what it's supposed to be." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I secretly think you're great at what you do because in just you know a couple of quick conversations, you set me on the right path, and that was. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I feel pretty strongly that I, I figured most of this out. I'm sure there's still some areas that I probably don't know, but uh, I'm being honest about it. So you Good actually you. you actually are a working clinical psychologist. You you see patients. Mm -hmm. So you you are an entrepreneur. You you have a business and, and, of course, you know, authors and you speak and you have a podcast. So what led you into this world of entrepreneurship? I asked you before we started, what was your first job? And I'm going to let you tell everybody what it was, but it's not what you would say, oh, that's a first job that leads somebody to becoming, you know, uh, a clinical psychologist. No, I was a jingle singer and a jazz singer in Dallas, Texas. So let's think about it. Let's stop at that. She was a I didn't even know being a jingle singer was something that like people listed on their on their resume. Like, what do you do? Oh, I, I'm a jingle singer. Oh, yeah. I mean, you show up at, if you do radio jingles, you show up at a studio at nine o'clock in the morning. You get you well, actually you better stay. You better show up at eight forty five and you get yourself a cup of coffee. You get seated along with eight or nine other people who are really good at reading music and music is set down in front of you. You take a big sip of coffee. You put on your headphones and you're expected to read the music perfectly. And and it goes the, the day goes very very fast and so, you do so your radio ids sing, sing me one of those jingles <laughs> um we're southwest airlines home just say when that was what i did there, there you go you know we all heard the southwest jingles there you go that's awesome so what so, led you what led you from a professional career as a jazz singer and jingle singer into what you do now 
Well, I loved singing, but I didn't particularly like working, uh, having a career as a musician. It's a very narcissistic kind of uh, career. You have to sell yourself constantly. And uh, a three-month gig is considered a long time to work somewhere. And so you, you, you get a job, and then you're looking for another job. And I just it, I grew tired of that kind of um, – I was fairly successful, actually, but I – I grew tired of that dynamic. So I, I had a guy named Ivan show up. He was a bass player. And he was he was subbing on my gig. And he told me about this thing called music therapy. And I so I looked into it. I put all the money down I had in the world to SMU and got in their music therapy program. And then once I did that, I did my last internship as a music therapist at a psych hospital, and I had been in therapy and trying to figure out my own life. And I walked around that psych hospital. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. This is what I want to do. So I went back. I was not a psych major in college. I went back and got even more hours. I'd gotten several with the music therapy um, degree. And sure enough, a couple of programs let me in. I think I was a curiosity because they asked the same question you did. Although my answer was uh, in one of the programs, they said, well, why did you decide you want to be a clinical psychologist when you've been a nightclub singer? And I said, well, actually, I have a lot of experience. I've listened to a lot of stories late at night. <laughs> that's, well, that's probably very true. I know I've, I've taken up doing uh, stand-up comedy and I, I wouldn't call myself a, a comedian, but I'm certainly an amateur. I do a lot of open mic nights. I've done maybe five shows where I've been a paid featured speaker. Um, sorry, uh, comic. But uh, uh, the one thing that I say is, is that, you know, comedy, a lot of people who are doing comedy are doing it, you know, because it's sort of their own their own therapy, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. So I think it's probably oh, yeah. the same to being a musician. You know, you're working things out while you're on stage. Oh, yeah. And uh, people ask me if I miss music. And my answer to that is, once you're a musician, you're always a musician. I mean, every session I do has sort of a, a beginning, a middle and an end, a, 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 dimin you know, a diminishing. And I just think of it musically. And so anyway, um, it's, it's not anything that leaves my identity. It's just not my the way I'll make my living anymore. So one of the things that I've learned over the last couple of years through kind of paying attention to this for the first time in my life is that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with a lot of different mental health kind of issues. And, and again, lots of them, I think, have to hide it because they have a team that they manage and, you know, clients that they have to put a thing out there for and stuff like that. What advice do you have in the world of entrepreneurship for business leaders uh, around their mental health? That's a great question. And luckily, I've had some wonderful people as patients who have shared with me some of their own struggles. Um, you and I were just talking about an article in Wall Street Journal that features Esther Perel. And she talks about how and she's a, a, a prominent psychotherapist. And she talks about how the business world has changed so much and that it, you know, people are using terms like passion and fulfillment and that kind of thing in, in wanting their jobs to be things that are um, things that they actually can't wait to get to in the morning. And I think certainly entrepreneurs, I mean, you have an idea, you have a concept, you have something you believe in strongly that you want to create and you have a vision of that. And yet, how does that stay aligned and, and balanced with your personal life, with uh, your other goals you have in life. And I do think that that balance is very, very difficult. If you add perfectionism into that or where you're 
you, it's not the destination you care about. It's how invested you are in the, I'm sorry, it's not the journey you care about. It's how invested you are in the destination that then you run into some problems because you, you know, you have to reach a certain um, financial level or you have to um, have a certain number of customers. I know certainly in when I first started blogging, I had to really watch that. I thought, now how many people like that? How many people shared that? You know, (laughs) does that make it a good blog post because people liked it or shared it? So I think entrepreneurs, um, probably to a great extent they're very very busy people they um are more energetic and keeping that in balance and keeping that something for their employees that they want to um urge them to reach their potential but also um, feel feel that they're creating a team, that they're creating a team. And sometimes, again, of course, my expertise is in perfectionism. When you when you want to do that, you you can become someone who mm, who your own goals can get in your way of realizing that you're you're not only do you have emotional and mental health issues, but your employees do too. So, how do you talk to them about that? Well, that's interesting that, that your specialty is in perfectionism, because I think that's mm-hmm. something that we see a lot in a lot of variety of businesses across sort of industry lines. And I see people all the time who, by the way, I'm not a perfectionist, but uh, I see people who are and, and they sort of make jokes about it and hide behind, you know, they hide behind that. So if somebody's listening and they go, oh, that that's me that she's talking, I am the perfectionist. What are some steps that they should be taking to, to maybe be able to deal with that better? One of the things I think is to recognize whether where on the spectrum of perfectionism you are. There's some great research coming out of Canada that talks about three different types of perfectionism. There is self-directed perfectionism. There's other directed perfectionism. And then there's something called socially prescribed perfectionism. The first one is, you know, maybe you grew up in a, in a family where there was a lot of achieving. Maybe you you had an idea of where you wanted to go and what you wanted to create in life. That's not pathological. That is called self-directed perfectionism, self-oriented. Again, could be problematic from time to time if it goes rogue, but you still, you know, you might have more trouble with balance, but it's not necessarily destructive. Other oriented or other directed perfectionism is guess what you expect perfectionism from others. Now that can be a problem, especially especially if you're a boss. Exactly, exactly. In fact, I've told people I'm a little perfectionistic myself, and I've told people I will never be president of a board again because I expect people to do what they tell me they're going to do. And on boards, they're volunteers, and frequently they don't. So I have to watch that in myself. I don't expect perfectionism from my patients. However, that's kind of interesting. But the third kind, socially prescribed perfectionism, is when you perceive or you, uh, in reality, the expectations of you are growing. You did a great job on a campaign uh, last month and somebody walks up to you and says, I can't wait to hear the next thing you're going to work on because I know it's going to be even better. Um, you are constantly believing that you are on this um, treadmill uh, and that never stops and that you always have to do better and better and increase your productivity and and be more um, be more just be more always well 
imagine if if you know a rat never gets off a treadmill i mean it's it's horrible it, you you have to get off that treadmill and people who are socially prescribed perfectionists can become actually it's the most dangerous kind of perfectionism because it can actually grow into suicidality very easily and i don't know how much your listeners are aware but the suicide rates internationally but especially in the united states are going up remarkably significantly, not only for teenagers, they're going up there, but for uh, men aged 40 to 46 and women aged 50 to 55. Hmm. So those are the, are usually highly productive years, things where you're very engaged in what you do, whatever it is, or you've changed careers and you're looking into growing another kind of business. And so that in and of itself, you know, if, if you feel this socially prescribed perfectionism, then it, it can really turn into despair and hopelessness quite easily. So it's interesting. One of the questions that I've started asking people who come on to the show is, and with you, this is kind of a more interesting probably question to ask, how important is it for people, and I'm usually talking entrepreneurs and people who are trying to grow something, how important is it for them to like themselves? Oh, well, well, you are talking to a therapist. And so I think knowing what you like about yourself, um, knowing what your vulnerabilities are, you asked me a few minutes ago, what can a perfectionist do? Well, um, really, it is in, um, to me, the antidote for perfectionism gone rogue sort of is self-acceptance. And self-acceptance is about knowing what you like about yourself, knowing what your strengths are, knowing what your competencies are, and being able to own those and say, yeah, I'm good at that. Um, I like being good at that. I've worked hard at that. So I do like that about myself. And you own it, not uh, with humility, but at the same time, you, you can claim that. Also important is to claim your vulnerabilities. I mean, again, we've talked about Brene Brown a few minutes ago. One of her strong, most potent messages is to say, I am more empowered by revealing my vulnerability than in not. And what she means by that is simply, if, if I tell you I'm impatient, and I am, I'm, <laughs> I have no patience personally, and, and then I'm standing in a grocery store line and you're standing beside me and I'm tapping my foot and looking at my watch and, you know, checking my, my texts and I look irritated. Well, guess what? You know, you're catching me being impatient and you go, why are you being so impatient? Well, I'm going, I'm not impatient. I, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm just one of, you know, and if I go, yeah, I am, that's what I really struggle with. And so let me cool my jets and just breathe and realize I'm not the most important person in line and I actually can wait and it's no big deal. Then I'm not caught off guard. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to cover up the fact that I can be impatient at times. So it's actually empowering to know what your vulnerabilities are, to claim them, to own them. And they don't define you any more than your successes do. That's the key. That's been the lesson for me the last four years to, to a, a large extent. And, you know, one of the things that I found, uh, you know, about myself in this whole thing is I think I'd stopped liking myself because I think I let some words and actions of other people bore themselves into me. And oh, yeah. I, I, consciously wasn't even paying attention to it but as i was unpacking some of this stuff and it was like oh what's that what's that box uh suddenly i realized that you know what i don't i don't need anyone's permission to like myself 
And that has been a huge door opener for me, uh, which is why I've been asking everybody the question. And it's interesting because different people have very different answers, but most people tend to stop and say, wow, that's a, that's a powerful question. Yeah. Um, I cannot tell you how many people have sat in front of me and said that they believe that if they claim their strengths, that they're being self-centered or even to use a very favorite word these days, narcissistic, rather than saying, no, I'm just self-aware. I'm aware of what my strengths are. I'm aware of my needs, my vulnerabilities, and that that is that's very powerful in and of itself. You know, you you talk about this message that was that you uh, absorbed. Often that is because of something in your past, uh, trauma or whatever, where someone screamed at you, you'll never amount to anything, or um, you know, the only reason you're around is because. Well, let me say, gosh, I've heard so many abusive things. It's hard to pick. Um, I keep you around because, uh, you know, I want to, uh, you know, it's not because of you. It's because you just fill the space. I mean, you can get all kinds of neglectful, abusive messages from people and especially parents. So, in fact, uh, I got fired from my first therapy job because and they looked at me and said, well, you don't know how to maintain relationships with people. That stuck with me for years. Um, and they were being mean. That wasn't the reason why they let me go. They, they thought I was a little too, um, I, you know, I was a little too independent and they didn't like that. So anyway, but that I absorbed that. And so I was constantly, you know, am I not good with people? So those kind of messages can really get under your skin and can erode whatever kind of competence you know you have. And yet, you, again, you can claim it with humility. Well, and then, you know, if you spend 12 or 14 years hiding it from yourself, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do, it doesn't do you any good. So once I, once I noticed it, realized, you know, what it was that was secretly bothering me, I was able to forgive sort of everyone involved and just let it go. I mean, it's, I, I, like I said, for me, it was like, ah, I shouldn't sing or hum when I have a professional jazz singer, (laughs) but, but it was like, there were, you know, it was like, like the clouds, the clouds had parted. And, you know, when I said, you know what? I can grasp my strengths and I can accept my weaknesses and I I can still like myself. All of a sudden it it made it a lot more fun to get up every day. You know, you're talking about acknowledgement. Um, A lot of people think therapy is for wusses because they say, Oh, you just want to go back and blame your parents and feel sorry (laughs) for yourself and you're a victim and blah, blah, blah. No, good therapy is not like that at all. In fact, if you go to therapy and that's what your therapist tells you, run away. Um, because what good therapy is about is just going back with some compassion and acknowledging that whatever happened, whatever situation you were born into, whatever marriage you were in that was demeaning or abusive or whatever first job you had that or teacher you had or coach you had, whatever it is, gave you the message that you were inferior or that you weren't enough or you didn't try hard enough then you go back and you just say, all right, what would it be like, you know, if, if it weren't me, what would I tell somebody else that had that experience? Well, I would say, oh, gosh, that's awful. And, you know, and so you say that same thing to yourself. You don't go back and stay bitter and blaming and wear a big chip on your shoulder. That's not, that's not healthy. But what you do do is just say, okay, what do I do now that I acknowledge that? 
that that was hard for me. What effect could it be having in my life now? And so you begin to see the patterns of your behavior. And we all have them. But it's it's somewhat flabbergasting sometimes to me to hear people say, you mean what I experienced as a child or in that marriage or in my teenage years affects me now? (laughs) Yeah, it does. And so, and certainly without consciousness, without awareness, you really don't know how it's affecting you. But what therapy can do, what self-help can do, what your own journey can do is you can, you can grow by leaps and bounds in your understanding of what made you you and what is governing or not controlling, but influencing your behavior now. Mm-hmm. So Margaret, one of the things I do in my work is I speak at company meetings and I work with mm-hmm. teams and we talk about how does a team and, and individuals get across the gap from potential to performance. And so I always like to ask the people on who come on this show, what do you think the delta is between people who have potential and never realize it and people who have potential and just zip right across that gap. Hmm. That's an interesting question. What occurs to me as a therapist is this, that people who have potential are either, they're not visualizing themselves changing. They're not seeing that, hmm, okay, let me, my mind's going really fast. What I, let's say, okay, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I got this, uh, this post went viral in 2014 and I never wanted to write a book. I hadn't even thought about writing a book, but for some reason I thought, wow, this is important. But it was a step-by-step process where, I had to begin to say, okay, what's the first step? Toward, let me do some research. What's the second step? And I, I think people who actually move toward those kinds of goals and get them done are the people that don't, that they break it down. They're able to break it down and say, okay, what needs to come first, second, third, fourth? And then they start taking those steps. You know, I'm, I'm a huge uh uh, I say this to my patients, probably they get sick of me saying it, but I think you get insight is a wonderful thing. I can understand that I want to do something. I can understand why I want to do something. I can maybe even understand how, when, and where I'm going to do it. But if I don't change my behavior, if I don't allow myself to then risk a change in my behavior, I'm, I'm not going to be hopeful. Um when I started doing this research, for example, I began to see these gaps in the research. And I thought, oh, well, would something I write maybe fill that gap? And I could, so I took the step to begin thinking about that. So every step along the way was where I got more and more hopeful that maybe I could make a difference or my, my words could make a difference. And what I see in patients all the time is that they'll say, this is the behavior I want to change, but they, they get stuck in their heads. They get stuck in the intangible conceptual part of it. And they, they don't do the grunt work. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of it is just, okay, I got to do the grunt work and I've got to risk. Yep. I mean, that's, we hear that time and time again is that, you know, it's in taking action. It's the execution. And like you said, 
it's taking risk because that's what entrepreneurs do, right? It's entrepreneurs take yeah. that risk or they would never build build their companies. So Margaret, I've got a couple of more questions for you. Sure. But really quick, I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Margaret, I call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's the coolest thing you're doing in your business right now? Oh, wow. Well, writing a book probably ranks right up there. <laughs> That's a big one. Sure. <laughs> but the other thing that I really, really love is my podcast. Um, I took training from Cliff Ravenscraft. Oh, yeah. And I was definitely the oldest person there for, for your listeners. I'm 65 years old. So this is, I mean, talk about, you know, writing a book at 65 and publishing. So, and then I started podcasting seven years ago. So I took it with all these younger people and I was, my, my learning curve was a little slower, but I got there and I, um, I love doing the podcast. What's, what's I, the name of your podcast? It's called the Self Work Podcast, S E L F W O R K, with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and um, I, I have absolutely loved it. People, I've done a few interviews, but then I got some complaints because I think people. It's about. It's usually around twenty two minutes, twenty three minutes, and what they told me is that it feels like a therapy session to them. <laughs> and so once a week they have their therapy session with me. And actually having a guest sort of interfered with that almost that familiarity <laughs> and that closeness. So I may do another podcast with guests, but I love doing it. So I, I do it on diverse topics. Um, and that's been very, very fun, challenging, um, intriguing. I've heard from people all from all over the world, <clears throat> excuse me, from all over the world. And it's just it's just been marvelous, just marvelous. Well, if anyone's listening, go check out the self-work podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, because uh, like I said, I personally think she's pretty amazing. So I think you'll really like her podcast. So the, one of the last questions I ask everybody who comes on the show is out there in the world of entrepreneurship, in the entrepreneur sphere, if you will, who do you admire? Who do you look at and say, wow, she or he, they're doing the cool stuff? Hmm. Well, the woman I mentioned, Esther Perel, is really doing some, in my field, is doing some wonderful things. Um. Uh, what is that? Uh, Mark Manson, I think is his name. Uh, he's got, he did the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... Oh, yeah. Sure. Actually, yeah. yeah. In fact, <laughs> I, I actually think he lives or did live when the book came out in Austin, Texas. So I've read really? the book. Yeah. I, I really like his stuff. Um, Jenny Lawson, the blogger, does some wonderful things. Um, and yet, you know, really, when I think about it, Tom, and I don't mean to sound all ushy-mushy about this, but... Some of the people that I know around here that are bloggers are doing fantastic work. They're not well-known. They're not um, on anybody's 10 best list, but they are out there trying to reach 
the people that want that are just like them that um there's a woman i know who does an ms podcast and she's had ms for years kathy chester's her name now she is pretty well known but there are other people out there who are just very satisfied with with helping others whether it's gardening whether it's cooking whether it's uh, learning how to podcast, no matter what it is, and they're they're putting in their two bits, and I really admire that because, you know, they're not hooked into the I have to be famous thing. They're just doing it because they love it. Well, and that leads me into the last question. So I always ask people when they come on the show because I think if we're entrepreneurs, we're able to carve our own path, have blogs yeah. and podcasts, and write a book. Uh, if we're able to do these things, and 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 you and I are fortunate, we get to do that. I also think if you're fortunate. You have to do more than just make money or have the fame. So I always love to ask people, what do you do to serve the greater good? Oh, well, well, I, I've never, um, I don't advertise on my site. I've never made really any money. I may make, I may make some money on the book, but um, I volunteer at an organization here called Welcome Health, which is a free health center uh, in town. And um one of my, the woman that's helped me a lot is, you know, people email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretweatherford.com. And I have answered every email that I've ever gotten. Including mine. <laughs> Including yours. So uh, it's a labor of love. But I really want people to understand that therapy is very approachable and therapists are approachable. And so I'm trying to destigmatize uh, reaching out for help. Um, so I'm... Well, and I'll say one more thing. I myself have personally admitted or revealed things that I've struggled with. I've been divorced twice. Uh, I had anorexia in college. I have a panic disorder. I have performance anxiety, which I actually don't have right now, which is really good. <laughs> You're doing great uh, on this podcast. <laughs> um, but I never know when it's going to enter the picture. And I've talked very openly about that so that I can model for people what it's like to do exactly what I say is empowering. Um, so I hope that's for the greater good. I oh, hope that me I being real, is. I was frightened to death that when I did it, people would go, I don't want to go to her. She's, you know, <laughs> she's, she can't solve her own problems. But what I found is exactly the opposite is people are sort of intrigued by the idea that I struggle just as well as anybody else, just as much. So um, anyway, I, that's that's my offering to people. I, I, I think that that's I think that's honest and I think that's wonderful. And I, and I will say that I have found like through the podcast, I'll share all kinds of stuff. And it's the personal stuff that you normally wouldn't put out there in marketing that people yeah. seem to relate the most to. So and especially in the role that you serve, I think it's even more important. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I respect you even more for that answer. So Dr. Margaret Rutherford, if people want to get a hold of you or they want to buy your book, how do they do sure. it? Well, the book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Indie Group, but you could also go to perfectlyhiddendepression.com. Uh, you can go to my website, which is drmargaretrutherford.com. Um, you can go to New Harbinger, who is the publisher of the book, and order it there. If you don't want to order the real the book itself because you're hiding still. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't want to put uh, that on the desk. Don't want people to see yeah. it on the desk. <laughs> it's in ebook form, so you can, you know, subscribe there um, and and get an ebook. Um, so there are plenty of ways to get the book. Um, I I what I did with the reflections and the exercises 
my publisher actually asked me to come up with a treatment strategy and it just terrified me. And then I thought, I just sat down and thought, what are the things I do with everybody? What are the steps? Again, those steps that you have to break it down to. And I came up with these five steps. Uh, the first one is really simple, which is just becoming conscious of what the problem is. And then we go on to talk about, you know, trauma timelines and confronting your rules and knowing that what the hurdles are and that kind of thing. So repeat Changing that repeat that first one one more time, because that had, was for me the first one alone cleared away. It's, it's just consciousness. It's I, I can't solve a problem. I can't address a problem. I can't work with a problem until I identify it as a problem. And for me, it was just knowing that, oh, this hidden sadness slash hidden depression thing, it's a thing. Yeah. Oh, who knew? It's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> that was that, and, that was um, And the other stages are just um, uh, there's consciousness and then there's commitment. Commitment is hard because you're used to be, you're, you're known for who you are. You don't necessarily want to, you know, you, you're scared to change that. And so you have to decide to commit. There's confrontation of rules and beliefs you're following. They're no longer working for you. There's connection with emotions that you've long suppressed or compartmentalized. And then the last one is change. And again, I really stress in the book that you're, and in these exercises that I don't want you to focus on the destination. I want you to focus on the journey because you can learn so much about who you are by saying, I've got, now I've got to become perfectly imperfect. And, <laughs> and, and, and I agree. That's not either. The, the, the last several years, it has been, it has been the journey. And it was, you know, a long journey before I felt like it was like, duh. But right. uh, but if I hadn't if I hadn't paid attention to it and thought about it and tried to figure it out, then I never would have gotten to that spot. So I think it is the journey uh, that gets you to be able to open those doors. Well, Margaret, thank you so so much You're for welcome. coming on. Cool things entrepreneurs do. I I, I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those podcasts episodes that I hear from a lot of people, uh, oh, especially good. as we're going into the holidays. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be like, Tom, that show mattered to me because I think what you talked about so openly and freely, I think it matters to a lot of people, whether they're entrepreneurs or not. So thanks for, for sharing so much. You're welcome. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every show. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we have the podcast? So if you like the podcast, go and review the podcast. Go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast love and uh, leave a review. But more important... Go tell somebody about it, because I'll tell you what, when I meet people who say, I love your show, I say, how did you find it? And everybody always says, oh, a friend told me, my mom told me, my boss told me to listen to that one episode, and then I was hooked. So if you like the show, go tell other people, because we want more people to hear the messages of the guests like Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Hey, I'm going to be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool as Margaret. And you're thinking, no way, you're not going to find anybody as cool as her. But I always do. But in the meantime, go out there, try new things, push yourself out of your comfort zone, and while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.